0: conservation tribe i'm your host blaine edwards aka earth offline on this podcast i talk with a range of conservationists every single week from scientists students creatives innovators and everyone in between i hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story educate collaborate and ultimately inspire action so if you want to join our conservation tribe then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we are joined by Sarika Khan Wilka, a PhD researcher at Columbia University and founder of Wild Tiger, a nonprofit committed to conserving India's Bengal tigers and their habitat. Sarika, thank you for coming on for a chat.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. No
0: worries at all. So, in today's episode, we're going to kind of explore the recent documentary series Tiger King and expand on some of the tiger conservation points that they probably could have expanded on further. Um, But before we do that, can you please introduce yourself to the podcast?
1: Yeah, so like you said, I'm a PhD researcher at Columbia University. My research takes place largely in Central India, which is a global priority tiger conservation landscape. My research is on forest health and forest livelihoods. So for example, looking at tree species diversity, and looking at patterns of uh, firewood collection. Uh, And then I also founded a nonprofit called Wild Tiger, which I run currently, uh, whose mission is to conserve the Bengal tiger and their habitat.
0: Okay, so as a tiger conservationist, what are your thoughts on the recent Tiger King documentary?
1: Yeah, well, it's something that I love to hate, and I I also hate to love. Like, the two things I loved about it, I mean, it was entertaining. Like, I couldn't keep my eyes off of Joe Exotic. Like, the things that came out of his mouth were, you know, just absurd, and it was very entertaining. Um, And then the second thing, because it's so entertaining, I kind of brought Captive Tigers into the headlines. There's millions of viewers of Tiger King and it allowed captive tigers to have a spotlight for once. Um, that's basically all it did. <laughs> and, and then I, you know, dislike it strongly uh, because it missed the opportunity to tell a really important tiger conservation story. And not only did it miss the, uh, an opportunity, but it also misrepresented Carol Baskin, who is a legitimate tiger conservationist. Um, and I think that's Pretty disheartening for people who are working towards tiger conservation to to see that happening. And I also like create uh, science content, and I think just it's irresponsible of the filmmakers to make a series on an endangered uh, animal such as the tiger and and just not expand on the issues that they're facing in the wild. And then also as a woman in science, in tiger conservation, I found the portrayal of Carol to be highly misogynistic. Uh, We see an entire episode dedicated to uh, the mysteries with the disappearance and death of her former husband. But where are the episodes delving into the histories of Joe Exotic and Doc Antle, where they have systematically been documented to abuse animals. Uh, where are those episodes? And we see this uh, play out in the public's eye where there are hashtags going around, like hashtag free Joe Exotic. And then you have a lot of the public calling and being in contact with Carol, giving her death threats. So I just found the, um, the way that the filmmakers portrayed the story was just highly irresponsible.
0: Yeah, I'm curious why they went down that route because they, they would have had a lot of ammunition for for the likes of, say, Doc Antle. I mean, you just need to do a little Google search on on who he is and there's plenty of information around that, but it seemed like they like to, yeah, I guess highlight her and, and present her in a fairly questionable way, which isn't ideal if, like you said, she's legit. Like for me, I, I didn't really know too much about the organization, so even, my, even myself, I was looking at it, there, I was like... What is she up to? What is she up yeah. to?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's it's totally, the, it was the filmmaker's choice. They wanted to blur the line between like the sanctuary and Carol versus the roadside zoo that Joe Exotic owns. But the facts are that there is no blurry line. Like there's a <laughs> clear definition of a roadside zoo and an animal sanctuary.
0: What is that definition?
1: Yeah, so... A tiger sanctuary, a a legitimate sanctuary, I mean, the biggest difference is that it doesn't breed tigers. Uh, Joe Exotic has a roadside zoo where he breeds and um, owns a lot of exotic wildlife, Um, whereas sanctuaries exist purely because they have to, because there are private households who own tigers and they end up not wanting it or can't handle it when it's fully grown. And they need somewhere to put it um, so that tigers can you know live, live out their life. And then while we're talking about sanctuaries and roadside zoos, I'll bring up that there are legitimate zoos. And in the United States, these legitimate zoos um, are accredited by the AZA, which is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And how we the biggest sort of distinction between roadside zoos and these AZA accredited zoos is like why and how they breed tigers. So in an AZA accredited zoo, uh, tigers are bred for the subspecies to maintain uh, genetic diversity within the subspecies. But tigers that are bred in roadside zoos, these are actually generic tigers. They are a mix of a bunch of different subspecies. And because of that, they have no value to conservation at all like tigers that are being bred in AZA and legitimate zoos, these tigers are sort of a last resort for saving the genetic material and sort of being um, a possibility of having a reintroduction program if these tigers' subspecies go extinct in the wild. But because of the genetics, like these generic tigers just will never be released into the wild.
0: Okay, so just to kind of break that down, so in terms of the sanctuary... A sanctuary doesn't breed the tigers. And on the zoo part, um, zoos, accredited zoos that are doing the right thing, they breed as well. Just like the, let's say the roadside zoos breed as well, but the breeding is different. So you mentioned a generic tiger. So that's, I guess, not one subspecies of tiger. That's like a mix match of all these different subspecies.
1: Exactly, exactly. So I brought up like my NGO wild tiger, we work towards Bengal tigers. And these are the subspecies that we find in India, Nepal, Bhutan and Bangladesh. And then you have a subspecies like the Amur tiger, which is found exclusively in Russia. So the the tigers that are being bred that are generic are just a mix of different subspecies. They can be a Bengal and an Amur and a Sumatran, let's say. Um But the, uh, but yeah, the tigers that the at legitimate um, facilities will be a pure subspecies and their genetic history is you know highly documented and whenever tigers breed like it's very intentional it's not just for commercial profit
0: okay i think that's important to kind of point out is that that there is a, a right and a wrong way to to breed an animal from a conservation point of view okay so that segues to my next question of do captive tigers have any conservation value
1: um, yeah, so kind of like I said, largely the captive tigers in America largely do not because, so there is an estimated five to 10,000 captive tigers in the United States. This includes less than 300, which are found at these AZA accredited zoos, which actually do legitimate breeding of tigers and they carefully oversee that we have pure subspecies. So we have thousands of tigers that are actually generic and will never be able to contribute their genetics to conservation programs and will never be able to be reintroduced to the wild. So yeah, largely there are thousands of captive tigers in America that have no value to conservation. And not only that, but they kind of negatively impact um, conservation as well in terms of when Doc Antle, particularly, he makes a lot of claims about saving wild tigers by breeding them, and that actually displaces money from legitimate tiger conservation, because people who don't, um, you know, these are are people who do love tigers that are paying him um, and going to his facility, so they really do want to conserve tigers. And when he is saying that he is, they believe him, and then they give him hundreds of Hundreds of dollars, but all of the money that he makes goes towards personal and commercial profit. Whereas that money that comes from a well intentioned person, it could have gone to a real conservation organization.
0: See, so these generic tiger species, we, we kind of we've talked about what that looks like, but why can't you release them into the wild? Why can't you uh, release a generic tiger into, say, with the Bengal tiger population in India? Why, why can't that happen?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, so there's kind of two main parts to releasing captive tigers in general. One is behavioral. So um, these tigers have lived in captivity their whole life. They just don't know how to hunt. And so they wouldn't really be able to survive in the wild, but also they are used to humans. And so they would probably find themselves going close to humans who they associate with food. And that might lead to conflict between humans and tigers, which would be very bad for both the reintroduced tiger and for uh, other tigers in general. Um, And then we'll get to the genetics. So if we did, let's say we did release a generic tiger into the wild and it's It it survived, you know, even with its behavioral um, challenges, it survived. But if it did breed with a Bengal tiger that has been living in the wild for generations, you know, you then are tainting the gene pool. And then we get into more of a like philosophical and ethical question there, where like, do we actually want to change the genetics of an entire subspecies? To have them there. Um, And I think, you know, there is in places, um, I mean, India is actually the place with the most, the highest number of wild tigers there. There's almost 3000 tigers in India. So I don't see a reason that a reintroduction program has to be there. But yeah, in countries where in tiger range countries uh, that have lost their tigers or where there's, you know, not a lot of tigers, I mean, that's why we have AZA accredited zoos, because they're the ones breeding the pure subspecies. And those are the tigers that will be reintroduced. So I really, even in that scenario, I really don't see a reason why a generic tiger would have to be released into the wild.
0: Just to kind of go back a bit on some definitions here. So what is tiger farming and what is cub petting?
1: Great question. So Tiger farming, it's a pretty general term. It refers to the intensive breeding of tigers. And we don't generally refer to... Uh, The breeding of tigers in the United States is tiger farming, but I would argue that tiger farming is occurring in the United States as well. When we talk about tiger farming, we're generally talking about what's happening in Asia and Southeast Asia. So tiger farming began in China in the 1990s, and now you can find tiger farms in China, Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam. And a lot of these tigers are bred Uh, for, for tourist um, props. Um, So tourists come and visit and have physical interaction with these tigers. Um, And at least in China and Southeast Asia, you know, tigers can really have physical interaction at any age. And, but of course, like cubs are the cutest um, part of the age of a tiger. And so cubs bring in the most tourists. And uh, when we talk about cub petting, Um, So in the United States, tigers can only have a physical interaction with people when they are between the ages of eight to 12 weeks. And so they really only bring in a a lot of that money for these commercial roadside zoos um, when they are a cub and when they're young. And once they're older than 12 weeks, they don't bring in as much money as they did when they were young. And they actually become quite an expense because of the amount of food they have to eat and because of the care they need when they get older. So these roadside zoos, um, cub petting sort of incentivizes people uh, in the United States, especially to just incessantly breed tigers.
0: Okay, so you mentioned there's a difference between tiger farming and tiger breeding, and that difference is in terms of the rate of the breeding and the scale of the breeding. Is that right?
1: I think so. I mean, like there's not really an agreed upon definition much of the, much of and, the same yeah and and that's why I would like actually the semantics to change, and I would like more people to acknowledge that there's tiger farming actually happening in America because I think it is it is tiger farming you know so yeah I'm I'm not even exactly sure about the proper definition of tiger farming but that's because I don't think there is one mm.
0: that would make sense to kind of differentiate let's say the tiger farming versus the tiger breeding because if we refer to it as just tiger breeding then people can get confused with the zoos that are doing the same thing and they're like why am i supposed to not support this tiger breeding when this zoo here that you support is doing the same thing so this is where i think terminology and definitions might be quite important for this particular thing
1: yeah no i think you're quite right i mean even the term roadside zoo there's really not a good definition of it but that's why i kind of think of it as just okay aza accredited zoos these are legitimate roadside zoos it just encompass any other breeder or exhibitor of animals that are not doing anything for conservation and then you have sanctuaries
0: Okay. And so the accredited zoos, how is someone supposed to know what that looks like? Is that something they have to kind of research beforehand? Is there force, like is there signage that has to be placed on these zoos? Like how do you tell an accredited one from a non-accredited one?
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, unfortunately um, in our capitalistic world, the onus is on us to figure out what we should be supporting where we should be going, you know, and what we should be consuming. So yes, you do a person who does want to visit a legitimate zoo. They do need to do some research. First off, a legitimate zoo will never let their visitors have physical interaction with a tiger or a tiger cub. Yeah, um, red flag. So- yeah, that is a complete red flag, physical interaction uh, with an animal. Um, and then next, if you go, I mean, if you just go to their website, if you just Google the zoo, um, I mean, AZA accreditation, it's a lot of hard work. I mean, zoos work hard to get that accreditation. So they will have it on their homepage. Uh, usually at the bottom, they'll have a list of all the accreditations they have. So just check um the accreditation of, of zoos and, and anywhere else you're going to go. And that actually goes the same for animal sanctuaries. So there is a global federation of animal sanctuaries that has the strictest standards for accreditation for sanctuaries. And I would say that any sanctuary that you go to should should have that accreditation as well. So do a quick go- Google search before you plan on going out to these facilities. Um, and then, you know, actually the best thing you can do if you want to see a tiger is to like come and see them in the wild
0: yeah 100 percent i mean nothing beats i've never seen a tiger in the wild but i've seen other animals in the wild and nothing beats just that feeling of seeing it and it's just raw state Like you can't you can't replicate that in a zoo like you just can't so if you get the opportunity to i think that's something that people should do but obviously not everyone has the opportunity to So, if you were to go to a zoo, just make sure you do your research beforehand. And I think that part is important in so many different other ways as well in terms of social media. If we see Doc Cantor and his crew uh, swimming with tigers in a pool, if there's just an inkling of doubt in your brain about whether this is the right thing, listen to that and hop on Google and just do some research yourself before you, I guess, like that or comment it or share it because... I view content like that as supply and demand. The more we like and engage with this content, we're effectively telling these content creators, we're demanding them to create more of it. And it can get into a vicious cycle if we go down that route.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, that's probably the thing that really irks me the most about Doc Antle. He's a very good marketer mm. and him. Uh, not only him and Myrtle Beach Safari, but um, many of his workers as well. They have millions of social media followers, and um, they have a big influence on people. And so, the fact is that those millions of people think that it's okay to be like closely and physically interacting with with those animals. Um, and the fact is just that it's super unnatural. So you were you were talking about. How, yeah, seeing a wild tiger is, you know, must be majestic in the wild. I mean, yeah, no cage is going to be big enough for a tiger. These animals, they largely live alone in large territories up to 100 square kilometers. And they spend the night, dawn and dusk time uh, patrolling and hunting. And then they're like sleeping most of the day, uh, you know, like any house cat. And so it's just super unnatural. It's not nice for me to look at, but I have the context of knowing what a wild tiger is like. Um, and so that's why that's why it can affect me in such a way. But yeah, it, it, is, it is pretty shocking to me how influential Doc Antle especially is on social media.
0: I mean, when you look at their crew, like collectively they have millions of followers. And like you were touching on before, a lot of these people that do the carpeting or like that photo they love animals like my my mum, she sent me a video about a month ago with i think cody antel like saw me with a tiger in the pool and i had a chat with her i was like that's that's probably not a like that's not a good thing but she is the kindest person in the world so how do you manage that like i have in the past you know seeing a video pop up on my feed, I go into the comment section and I scroll down and I see comments like, where can I buy a pet cheetah? Where can I buy a pet chimp? And so I try and engage with these people, like not in a pointing fingers kind of way, because that's not my style. I try and have like a constructive conversation with them. It doesn't always get traction. So I think just figuring out how we can start those conversations and have that dialogue in a way where they might be able to learn something new and might be like, okay, maybe... This person isn't supporting, like, isn't representing the things that I genuinely believe in as an animal lover. Like, I think how we have that conversation is so important. Okay. So, how are wild tigers impacted by the captive American tiger trade?
1: So, there is one sort of direct way, and that is that the money uh, that is going to these roadside zoos, like those owned by Joe Exotic and Doc Antle, that is actually uh, displaced from legitimate tiger conservation. So Joe Exotic and Doc Antle, they misrepresent their work to people who just don't know better. And otherwise, these people would give that money to legitimate organizations. Um, And then we have a more sort of indirect way that U.S. captive populations are impacting negatively wild tigers. So basically, no state has a law about the disposal of tigers. And we have thousands of tigers in the United States where we don't know where they are and we don't know where they go when they become unwanted. So we have a potential for legal tigers being bred in the United States to leak into the illegal wildlife trade. And the reason I say this is because the, uh, the demand for tiger parts in the illegal wildlife trade is growing. It has increased since 2002. And um, there's a lot of money involved as well. So people want tiger parts. They want their skin and they want their bones. And this can be worth thousands of dollars. So because there's no regulations on tiger ownership and tiger breeding in the US, um, we just have no idea where where these tigers are going. So I think it's really important to take a precautionary approach to tiger ownership and breeding in the United States Um, if there is this potential for you know, U.S. captive tigers to be supplying the illegal trade, then we need to address our U.S. captive tiger problem.
0: Okay. So on that, the tiger ownership, what are some things that the general public can do to help mitigate that kind of trade? And also, um, I guess the ownership of tigers as well in, in America?
1: Um, so the most urgent thing, and this is directed more at U.S. citizens, is to contact their national governmental re- representatives and tell them to support the Big Cat Public Safety Act. So this is a, uh, act that will be up for vote probably, um, before the end of this year. And it would end the, it would outlaw, uh, basically cub petting. And like I said, cub petting is really the thing that is driving this incessant breeding and ownership of tigers. Um, So that's more directed at US citizens. But I think in general, what people can do is uh, just go to legitimate places. If you wanna see a tiger, do your research, make sure it is a legitimate zoo or sanctuary. And if they have physical interactions with tigers, Like we said, that is a red flag. Just don't go there. I know how tempting it must be. I mean, actually, I don't know because I've never held a tiger cub, but like, I mean, I would love to. They're really cute. But because of what I know, I will never go to a place that would allow me to do that.
0: So talk about some of the threats, but can you please, I guess, talk again about what are the main threats to uh, wild tiger populations?
1: Yeah, so the main threats to wild tigers are habitat loss and poaching. Habitat loss is something that really affects all endangered biodiversity on the planet, and it's a really pervasive problem. But I would say poaching, both of tigers and their prey, um, is probably the primary threat. And the reason I say it's the primary threat is because in India as well, there is habitat where tigers should be, but we don't find them there. And that is directly because of poaching. And so poaching of uh, tiger's prey, such as wild boar or deer species, happens because of subsistence needs. So uh, people living around that forest will uh, set out um, snares or use electrocution to, uh, kill an herbivore and then eat it for their protein source um, but uh, largely the methods that these people in India specifically are using they are indiscriminate so even if a tiger walks uh, on on that sort of electrical uh, wire or in that snare that tiger is also going to die so there's kind of this like accidental killing of tigers when people are actually targeting the herbivores to right, eat bycatch. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Tigers are bycatch, yeah. um, and then of course you have the uh, the just direct killing of tigers, which is driven uh, in large part by the demand for their parts, um, and then somewhat driven uh, in retaliation. So tigers, of course, they are a dangerous animal; they can kill people, and sometimes they are killed in retaliation to send a message to the forest department and to send a message to. Uh, tiger conservationists
0: Hmm. okay so these are some of the threats how does that how is that impacting the the population so what's the population of tigers in the wild and as a comparison how does that compare to captive tigers in the u.s for example
1: Yeah, well, so globally, there are under 4000 tigers left in the wild. And like they've undergone massive uh, population declines, because in the 1900s, there was over 100,000 tigers uh, in the wild. And now they live in less than 7% of their historic range,
0: less than 7%.
1: Yeah, less than 7% of their historic range. So both their range has contracted and they've gone through a massive population decline. So there's 4,000 tigers left on the planet. And we just compare that directly to how many captive tigers are in the United States. There are 5,000 to 10,000 tigers in the United States in captivity. That's more than are left in the wild today. And then we can get like even more specific in India, which has a little under 3,000 tigers, I mean, they hold the majority of the world's tiger population. It's a very important country to conserve and to prioritize. But even the state of Texas itself has more tigers than all of India.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? When you like just look at that particular stat of comparing the wild versus the captive's And how there's so few in the wild and there's so many in in captivity (laughs) yeah it's a shame and it doesn't make you feel good
1: (laughs) yeah exactly I mean I don't know besides invasive species I don't know of any other example of a species that is in higher exists in higher numbers in non-native ranges
0: why tigers? Is it there's this prestige associated with them, isn't there? This like the status thing. That obviously must be contributing to people wanting to get them just to boost their status.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I mean globally people rever the tiger in different ways. You have um local and indigenous cultures that have grown for hundreds of years, have developed um living alongside the tiger. And the way that they show their respect to the tiger is actually having the tiger as a god and praying to it and then you have people largely in the more quote unquote developed world who show their love of the tiger by wanting to own it um so it's very interesting how that's a strange love that one very strange
0: so as mentioned before you're the the founder of wild tiger What are some strategies, some conservation strategies that you're personally implementing and perhaps other organizations as well to protect tigers and their habitat?
1: Um, So I'm going to talk more in general. So I work, my uh, wild tiger is based in the US and I kind of partner with on the ground organizations who are working like 24/7 for tiger conservation. So I'm more going to focus about what they do Mm -hmm. um, right now. So I think the three biggest things that we can um, do for tigers today is one mitigating human wildlife conflict. The second is focusing on landscape level conservation. And the third is empowering and engaging local communities. And so I think science is a really important part of all of those. So with human wildlife conflict, figuring out patterns, figuring out what makes people susceptible to coming into contact. Where are conflict hotspots? And then with landscape level conservation, I mean, this is a holistic approach to conservation. And I mean, bit tigers are big cats. They need big territories. We need to think bigger. So landscapes are, you know, they have private lands, you have public lands, you have protected areas, you have habitat corridors. So, you know, I see science really fitting into that in terms of identifying habitat corridors uh, for tigers and for otherwise. And then when with empowering and engaging local communities, um, so a lot of indigenous people specifically have been uh, heavily marginalized by the scientific process or by conservation itself. And their voice has largely been left out of of our conversations. So finding out ways of engagement and participation is really important. So right now, um, what I specifically do um, is, is the science aspect. Um, of trying to contribute to to all of those strategies
0: we're currently talking about the wild tiger population but i want to i've got one quick question back to the captive tigers i found it interesting when you're saying for the cub petting there's a small window where they can actually be pet and i think Mm -hmm. you said from eight to 12 weeks is that time where they can actually be used as props for petting can you talk about that life cycle of a tiger in captivity
1: Totally. Well, I think there's actually a scene in Tiger King that shows um, Joe Exotic having a sort of sharp metal stick and um, taking this freshly born tiger cub away from the mom. Well, I mean, that doesn't happen in the wild. Uh, Certainly these cubs, cubs actually stay with their mom in the wild for uh, around two years so that their mom can um, nurse them, providing them proper nutrients uh and, and teach them just how to how to live, how to be a wild tiger. But we see in captivity largely these cubs, they're born, they're immediately ripped away uh from their mother. They don't get the proper nutrition. And then when they are ready, when they're between 8 to 12 weeks and doing all these engagements with the public, that's during the day and that's usually when they need to sleep. And you know, like for for even human babies, like sleep is really important for our development. And so we're keeping these cubs up at times where naturally they wouldn't be awake and they're just being handled by people uh, consistently. So it's just super unnatural. Um, And then at the end of 12 weeks, you know, they can kind of like bite a human's finger off. So then it doesn't become safe for the public to handle them. So then they go uh, in a cage, which, of course, is not large enough for them. And then either they spend their life at the place where they were bred At the roadside zoo, they might find a a private household that purchases them um, or they are killed. Uh, We heard in Tiger King, we heard about five tigers that we know of being shot by Joe Exotic.
0: Okay, and what about ligers? What are they and is it ethical to breed them? They are just these massive creatures and I'm seeing more and more of them on social media, so I thought I'd ask the question.
1: Oh, I, that's a that's horrible news. I didn't know they're they were increasing. Um well, I'm seeing so more photos of them. A, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I really dislike that. Um, but thanks for telling me. Uh so a liger is a cross between a male lion and a female tiger, and they're totally unnatural. Like a liger has never been born in the wild, and because of that, I find it uh highly unethical. So historically, historically in Asia, I mean, I'm talking, you know, about 100 years ago, there was an overlap in territories between, let's say, the Asiatic lion and the tiger. So but even though they overlapped territories, they never mated and uh, made a liger baby. So these animals really are our modern day Frankenstein's. We are creating a totally new species, this hybrid that, that just doesn't exist in the wild. So I find that um highly unethical. Um and I also want to talk about white tigers as well. Okay. White tigers are interesting because, unlike ligers, the mutation which causes the the coat not to have its orange brownish color is actually a natural mutation. So in the 1950s, um, there were white tigers in central India, but there has never been a white tiger seen in the wild since the 1950s. but the mutation that causes this uh, coat color—it's a single point mutation in in the gene. And what I mean by that is, like, you know, a gene is made up of letters like A T G C. So, uh, you know, one A is switched for one T in a specific spot, and boom, the color changes. And this mutation—it did happen naturally, um, but it hasn't happened naturally. We haven't seen it in the wild for the past 50 years. And so, and the white tigers that we see in captivity, they are all descendants from a single male tiger that was brought to the US in the 1950s. So this mutation is actually a recessive gene. And so in order to keep breeding white tigers, uh, people have had to inbreed these tigers. So like the first, the, this white white tiger was brought over from Central India in the 1950s, and he was actually mated with his daughter to produce another white tiger. And so all of the white tigers that you see today, they're all related. And in order to produce more, you just, you know, mate the, you know, the father with the daughter and so on and so forth, um, which I think is just gross. (laughs) But you also run into genetic problems. There's just a ton of inbreeding depression um, which just grows and grows into more genetic problems for these tigers. So to breed a white tiger is is highly unethical as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've been talking about tiger conservation, tiger welfare. But in your opinion, why is it important to conserve tigers?
1: Um, well, I think they have a lot of cultural and ecological importance. So culturally, in tiger range countries, there are cultures that, um, you know, look at the tiger as a god, and it's they're really important to them. Um, and even outside of tiger ranges, I mean, the entire world, the tiger is a symbol. It's a symbol of strength and and we all kind of love the tiger, whether we've whether we have them in the wild or not. Um, so culturally, they're pretty important. And me as a scientist, I have to talk about the ecology a little bit. They are an apex predator. So they help sort of control the herbivore population, which if it's not controlled, the herbivores are going to eat all the vegetation and we're not going to have any like trees and grass and stuff. So they uh, provide an important regulation to the ecosystem when they are present. Um, And they're also used as a flagship species because they have this charisma to them. They can be used to sort of engage people with conver- with uh, conservation. Um, and when you save the tiger, you're saving a whole lot of other species because of the large habitats that tigers have.
0: All right. Okay, so how can people connect with you online and learn more about your work?
1: Yeah, they can uh, follow me on Instagram. My handle is at Sarika Living Wild. Uh, and then also... Subscribe to my newsletter. You can go to my website, which is wild-tiger.org, and just right on the homepage, there's a big button that says subscribe. Um, So, subscribe to that. Um, That's where I give you, you know, on social media, um, you know, you just get like little snippets um, of stuff. But if you really are interested in tiger conservation, um, then sign up for the newsletter and they'll, you're there you will get more details and more meaty descriptions on on what I'm doing.
0: Okay, so for the final segment, what message do you want to leave the listeners of the Conservation Tribe?
1: I wanted to say that anyone and everyone can be a conservationist. Um, I think for me, I happen to be a scientist and I happen to love it. Those are where my skills and expertise lie. But not everybody has to be a scientist. Um, you don't have to have a degree in biology or a conservation scientist um, to be a conservationist. So I think especially right now during our global pandemic is a really good time for us to be like introspective and think about um, how we want to impact the world. And I think most people want to leave a positive impression on the world and leave it better than we than we left it um and so you know how can i want people to ask themselves like what skills and expertise they have and how can they apply that to help animals and to help the earth heal and that can be just in so many ways it, it's just the list is endless like if i tried naming off things ways that people can help um i would never be able to complete that list but everyone can and should be a conservationist in, in a large way or in a small way.
0: Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you
1: in the next episode.